The scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 18. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called his elder son Esau and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, See, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Then, prepare for me savory food such as I like, and bring it to me to eat so that I may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to her son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me game and prepare for me savory food to eat, that I may bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my word as I command you. Go to the flock and get me two choice kids, so that I may prepare for them from them savory food for your father such as he likes. And you shall take it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a man of smooth skin. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my word and go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. And she put the skins of the kids on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the savory food and the bread that she had prepared to her son Jacob. So he went into the father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Think I'm coming? Ooh, there I am. Okay. Wow. Man. So I haven't preached in, well, I've preached, but to like webcams and screens. I haven't preached in real life for 18 months. And here we are. And, uh. This is really different. This is really cool. I've never preached outside, and you can tell that because I dressed completely wrong and forgot my sunglasses, even forgot my backup ball cap just in case I forgot my sunglasses. Um, and I'm sweating like big time, but that's more for me to know. Sorry. Um, you know, I, I love this passage, though, and we're continuing our series on the 10%, the women of the Old Testament. And this is one of my favorite texts because we get to see I mean, it's a scandalous text. We get to see the earthiness of the Old Testament. Um, we could see the grittiness of it. We could see family tricks, parents like triangulating their children. Um, it's, it's all right there. Sibling rivalries is in the background. It's all right there, and it's all right at the heart of the beginning of the Jewish story, which really becomes the whole biblical story in our story. All that right here in their ancestral line. And this is, this is Rebecca's story primarily today. And we see some pretty brazen activity on Rebecca's part. I mean, 
not only is she tricking her husband of maybe 40 or some say 60 years and defrauding her older son Esau, but she's actually, now get this, she's actually breaking the law. She's actually breaking the law because in the day, in all cultures in that region in the day, but it's even in the Bible, there was a law that said always that the oldest son has to receive the blessing, the family blessing. And what that means is, it's hard for us to kind of get our minds around right now, but that blessing that Isaac wanted to give was everything. It was the family leadership going forward. It was most of the wealth. It was part of how they organized, you know, their tribes and that kind of thing. So she's actually taking that, breaking the law to give it to her younger son. Even Jacob who's a trickster. If you, if you know anything about his story, Jacob is one of the ultimate tricksters. He's nervous. He's not sure it's a good idea, but she says, look, you have to do this, and don't worry. If anything goes wrong, I'll, I'll pay the price. That's what Rebecca says. Now, Jewish and Christian scholars have wrestled with this for literally thousands of years, trying to make sense, like, what do you do with a story like this that's full of tricks and deception? And even, even uh, this week, I saw a guidepost article. I don't even know if you know what that is. It might be better if you don't know what guidepost is. Um, I thought it had gone extinct, but it's a pseudo-spiritual kind of, I don't even know. It's a magazine. And uh, the headline was, Rebecca. Rebecca is an example of taking God's will into our own hands. Don't be like Rebecca. That was the, the take. Now, I wanted to pull my hair out. Because that's not what the story is about. In fact, the narrator of this whole story, as messy as it is, the narrator nowhere says that Rebecca did anything wrong. And in fact, even Abraham, when he finds out what happens, he doesn't condemn Rebecca or Jacob. And other parts of the Bible that look back on this really interesting, messy passage don't condemn Rebecca at all. So, I love this kind of thing. I love this kind of thing in the Old Testament in the Bible because it challenges our natural desire, our need to moralize everything we read in these old stories. And that's simply not why they were written. Now, I want to be clear, just crystal clear, because I know we've got kids here and parents. I want to be really clear. Anything you hear me say today, the message is not, let's all leave from here, steal each other's identities, and start stealing each other's stuff, okay? That's not the message today in any shape or form, but on a really deep level, on a really deep level, Rebecca is the hero of this story, and we'll see that she's a prophet. I mean, she's truly a prophet. She's not like officially recognized as one, but she's a prophet and a saint and also a bit of a trickster, but God actually uses that. Her story is fascinating. We're not going to take much time to go through all the details at all, but just a few highlights is she, many years earlier, she had left everything left everything in faith on somebody else's word, somebody else's testimony, to go meet and this guy, marry this guy, Isaac. I'd never met him. And she goes in faith. It's her decision. Her parents put it to her. She could decide whether or not to do it. And she goes, she meets Isaac, and they have kind of a cool initial story. There's actually a, a hint in the Hebrew that they were truly in love. It's the first time um, anywhere in the Bible that a certain word for love is used between two humans. So the really cool start, and then some challenges. 20 years of infertility. 20 years of being unable to conceive a child. Isaac prays, 
Rebecca does conceive, and you think it's like all turning up now, but another problem, because she's pregnant, and it's not going well. She's uh, experiencing, she's pretty sure she has twins. She's experiencing this sense of two twins wrestling violently within her, and it's so painful and so uncomfortable that she actually isn't sure she wants to live. There's a there's a quote in uh, chapter 25 before where she cries out. She's like, if this is the way it's going to be, I don't want to live. She's miserable. So she goes to God, and that is really interesting. She goes directly to God and converses directly with God, something only the prophets did. It says, what's happening here, God? God talks to her directly. And the way, um, this is a paraphrase of that conversation for sure, but the way it basically goes is this. God's like, Okay, as you suspected, Rebecca, you're pregnant with twins, and uh, congrats on that. Um, The only thing is, those two babies in your belly actually represent two different nations. And those two nations are like at war with each other. And so all that wrestling and that pain, it's because of that. So just so you understand where the pain's coming from. But there's one more thing. One more thing. Um, In this case, the older son... The older son is actually going to serve the younger son. The older son's going to serve the younger son. And I know there's that law of primogeniture. That's what actually what it's called. There's that law but that says it's supposed to work the other way. But yeah, just not this one time, okay? So you take all that, Rebecca. Good luck. Congratulations again. And go on with your life. That's, that's the account. So she has this direct encounter with God. And she's given this hidden knowledge. She's the only one who knows. Isaac doesn't know this. And it's really doubtful that even if she were to tell Isaac, that that he would believe her. So what do you do? What do you do when you know something absolutely? You know something absolutely that nobody else knows and that nobody else could possibly understand and will defy all public norms and expectations. I mean, what do you do when you have this kind of knowledge and you're a, you're a woman in the Bronze Age with limited power and authority. I mean, just take a minute to imagine Rebecca carrying this knowledge from the time these babies are in her womb to this, this point of our, our story today. I can only imagine her wondering how on earth this reversal of the social order was supposed to happen. I mean, God didn't give her a plan, didn't explain how it's going to happen. And year after year goes by, she watches these children grow up. Now Isaac is very old and is about to bestow the final blessing on Esau. And time is truly running out. So what does she do? Time is running out. She has to think fast. And where it gets awesome is she adopts, she takes on the role of the trickster. Now, Jacob in this story is also a trickster. Many stories about him, but here we get to see who he got it from. He definitely got it from Rebecca, definitely got it from her side of the family. And I'm not applying any negative connotation here when I use that word trickster. I'm I'm talking about the trickster archetype of narratives, of ancient stories, because it shows up all over the place. It shows up in the Bible many times, and they had certain characteristics. Okay, tricksters were always boundary busters. Okay, they're always boundary busters. They always were violating social norms to irritate the established power structures, but with a purpose. Because in that, they would often reveal and lift up truths that had been obscured, that were hidden. 
And so in that sense, it's kind of widely recognized in literature that tricksters are sort of inherently prophetic. They lift up things that other people need to see, and they do it through irritating the rules followers, kind of like me and probably like you. But they reveal things we need to see. So Rebecca, here, using the power she did have, the power of a mother, with deep perception into the character and appetites of her husband and her children, and the power of an artist who could craft food and cloth and animal skins to create an alternate reality to actually transform Jacob into a version of Esau, sends Jacob into Isaac. Now, she's got nothing to personally gain here. She's got everything to lose, but she's been carrying this divine promise for her kids' entire lives, since they were in her womb. And she dares to act before the blessing's given away. And there's a scholar named Mary Jo Bowman that looks back on this and says, the portrayal of Rebecca shows that women in Israel were viewed as persons who could make crucial decisions about their futures, whose prayers were acknowledged, who might know better than men what, what, what God designed, and who could apparently take steps necessary to support God's plans for the community. And of course, this kind of story will make us somewhat uncomfortable because it's messy. And if you're anything like me, and I'm an Enneagram One, you crave order, you crave durable structures in the world that make life predictable and keep society kind of on the straight path and on the healthy path, or the, at least the way we envision that thing to be. And I'll just tell you, like, stories of trickery and deception on a visceral level, like, they don't sit very well with me. They challenge me. But stories like this in the Bible, and there are a lot of them, they don't even try. They're not trying to give us a perfect moral explanation. They don't do that. That's not why they're written. They invite us to marvel. To marvel. And that's what Walter Brueggemann says looking back on this passage. He says, the way of God will not be explained. The way of God will not be explained. The narrative invites us to marvel rather than to explain. And here's why I think that is. That God, God who is the chief protagonist in this story, seems really comfortable allowing tricksters to shape the story of God's people. It's almost as if God wants Israel, and in this case, this is Israel's origin story. This is where they come from. God wants Israel to deeply understand that their very existence as a people, their identity, their belovedness has nothing to do with their innate goodness or power. I mean, by all human accounts, they shouldn't even exist because their patriarch, Jacob, wasn't even a firstborn. And that never happens. And it was only through a promise of God and the quick, creative boundary-busting trickery of a woman named Rebecca who could see something nobody else could see, that Israel's identity took shape. And when we think about it that way, it's not hard to see that God, God's self, is a bit of a trickster too. The God of the Bible is constantly surprising people, is constantly upending the established social orders, the established power structures. In fact, I would say that turning things upside down is God's preferred way of operating in the world. Turning things upside down is God's preferred way of operating in the world. 
We see this in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not, the things that don't even fully exist to nullify the things that are. And the reason, the reason so that no one, no one may boast before God. No one may boast before God on their own merits. So Rebecca, Rebecca's a model for us, but not because of her moral perfection or because she's a perfect wife or a perfect mother, but because she believed, she believed and staked everything on the promise of God. She believed and staked everything on the promise of God that was entrusted only to her. That the normal order of things would be turned upside down. She was willing to be called a betrayer, a lawbreaker, a heretic to support the plan that God had announced to her and only her. So people can, can argue about her methods, but it's really not the point. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul, Apostle Paul, looking back on this, Paul says, look, Rebecca dared to trust the promise of God. Dared to trust the promise of God, and that's so much more important than moral perfection." We're going to keep it short today, but just a couple reflection questions to take with you into the week ahead. Some things I've been thinking about reflecting on this passage. Are there Rebecca's in our life right now that we need to listen to? Are there tricksters that we need to be listening to? And by that, are there people who aren't playing by the rules, by the social rules and the rules of the power structures that have something to say that we need to hear? And more personally, has God been putting something in your heart? In your heart that needs to be birthed in you. But it's being drowned out or shoved aside by what's socially acceptable, either in your own circle or maybe more importantly, in your own psyche. What's socially acceptable to your own ego, to your own inner critic. Is there something God wants to birth in you that you need to be able to be willing to put aside some of the power structures you're operating within to see come to fruition? I think Rebecca, Rebecca, if she could speak to us directly, would say something like, look, you were never promised, you were never promised a clean or simple life. You were never promised a clean or simple life, but you've been given God's promise and you've been given God's favor so dare to trust in that and dare to love one each other, however, however imperfectly, because the only real danger is to spend a lifetime playing it safe while you're holding the promise of God. When I was thinking about Rebecca this week, thinking about this story, I kept thinking about this poem I'd, I'd kind of forgotten. Um, I'm gonna just use a section of it. This is Adrian Rich. And it's from Stepping Backward. You can message me later. I can send it to you. This is from Stepping Backward. It's kind of complicated, so I'll try to do this well. It's just a short section, though. You asked me once, and I could give no answer. You asked me once, and I could give no answer. How far dare we throw off the daily ruse? Official treacheries of face and name. Have out 
our true identity. Let's say that part again. You asked me once and I could give no answer. How far dare we throw off the daily ruse, official treacheries of face and name, have out our true identity? I could hazard an answer now if you're asking still. We, we are a small and lonely human race, showing no sign of mastering solitude out on this stony planet that we farm. The most we can do for one another, the most we can do for one another is let our blunders and our blind mischances argue a certain brusque, abrupt compassion. The most we can do for one another is let our blunders and blind mischances argue a certain brusque, abrupt compassion. Let's pray. God, give us the spirit of Rebecca, the spirit that's willing and daring to trust your promise, your voice, and is willing to stumble forward in compassion as we try to grow and as we follow you. Let that be in our heart this week as we go forward this week. Amen.